Thanks for listening to the Inner Life Podcast. Be sure to join us every weekday at 11 a.m. Central on Relevant Radio or on the Relevant Radio app. Find your local Relevant Radio station at RelevantRadio.com or stream us live every day on the Relevant Radio app. It's time to set out on the pathway to healing and light. This is the Inner Life on Relevant Radio. If you have questions or concerns about your faith journey, if you are struggling or searching for something more, if you are in need of some spiritual direction, our Catholic priests are here to help. One heart at a time. Welcome to the Inner Life on Relevant Radio. Hello and welcome to The Inner Life here for a Wednesday and hope you're having a good day, good start to your day here. I'm Josh Raymond, so glad to be along with you. And today, as we get started, do you have a certain movie that you like, even though maybe you know it's not such a great movie? Maybe you saw it at a certain point in your life and it made an impression on you, even though you know it's not that good of a film. Well, something might have resonated with you, right? For whatever reason, at that point in your life, And when you saw it, something just stuck with you. Well, when I was 15 years old, I was on a summer vacation where we ended up driving down to visit my sister in California. And this is down in the Bay Area, just outside of San Francisco and Oakland. And my sister, Crystal, she's 13 years older than me. So at that time, she was already married and she had two children of her own. And while we were there visiting my sister's family, I was in this city where I really didn't know anyone else. I didn't have a bike to ride around, get anywhere, and explore. I wasn't old enough to drive. And I was just kind of stuck there at different times when we weren't doing any official activity as a family. But I was fortunate enough to be growing up in the times of VCRs. And so I was able to go down and rent some different VHS tapes from the local movie rental store and pass some of my downtime watching different movies. One movie that I happened to pick up was You Only Live Twice. And that's a James Bond film starring Sean Connery. There's that iconic music by John Barry uh, that sets up the James Bond image in your mind. I'm sure everybody's probably heard that at least once in their life. Well, so I have no idea why I chose that song, or (laughs) that song, that movie, I know my dad would occasionally watch, you know, if it was up on the Friday night or the Sunday night movie on television or something like that, he might stay on it and watch a James Bond movie for a while. But I really had never paid close attention to any of those movies. So I ended up renting You Only Live Twice, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. And like I asked you at the beginning of the show, if you have a movie that you like, but you know it's not that great of a movie, well, this is one of those for me. It's got some really, really campy and cheesy moments. Some of the gadgets are starting to get over the top for James Bond. There are definitely some worse James Bond movies out there, but there are also many other better ones. But that was my introduction to the 007 movie franchise. Now, the very first James Bond movie, it's Dr. No. And I didn't see that one during that summer, when I visited my sister, but I did see it a couple of years later. And in Dr. No, James Bond, he's sent to Jamaica to learn why one of their British Secret Service agents that was stationed there in Jamaica, why this person was killed. And in the course of finding and following different clues, James Bond, he ends up 
seeing himself on this small island called Crab Key, and it's owned and controlled by Dr. No, the villain of the movie. And it turns out that Dr. No, he's doing all of this work with radioactive materials. Later, we get to meet Dr. No, and we see that he has these big metal hands, ones that have been replaced with normal human hands, because his, his human hands have been severely damaged by all his work with radiation. But that means that there's radioactive material and contamination all over Crab Key. So when Bond originally, when he originally gets there to that island, he's wandering all over the place. He's trying to avoid Dr. No's henchmen. He's, he finds and meets this local girl, Honey. She's a diver for seashells that she'll go and sell back on the main island. Well, the two of them, they eventually are captured. And uh, when they're first brought into Dr. No's facility, they're surrounded by people in hazmat suits. And someone waves a Geiger counter over James and over Honey, and it shows that they have been exposed to radiation. And so James and Honey, they have to go through this cleansing process. They get sprayed with some sort of, it's a sudsy kind of soapy solution, and then they're scrubbed down with these big brushes. They're checked again at this point, but they still show signs of radiation contamination, and they have to discard their clothing. It's all burned up. And then they individually, they step onto this kind of conveyor belt shower system where each of them then is washed down thoroughly. And Honey, she steps out of this and she registers completely clean. But Bond, he still has a little sign of radiation that's left over. And so finally they say, well, let's clean under your fingernails. And that's the last bit. Only after this, only after they're completely clean, then are they allowed to enter the main section of Dr. No's lair. Now, that scene, it kind of reminds me of what most of us will eventually experience. Just like James Bond, just like Honey, they had to be completely cleaned before they could enter into and meet Dr. No. They had to be cleansed of radiation. And most of us will have to be cleansed at the end of our earthly lives. Obviously not, uh, hopefully not, of radiation poisoning or contamination. And we're not going to meet some villain. We're going to meet our Lord and Savior. Um, But at the end of the book of Revelation in the Bible, we have where the, the uh, apostle, St. John, he gives this description of heaven. And at the end of this description, he says, nothing unclean can enter heaven. So how will we be clean? How will we be cleansed before we enter heaven? Well, we'll be cleansed of our attachments to selfish desires, of our attachment to sin. And these will be purged from us in a cleansing process that the church calls purgatory. And today here on The Inner Life, We want to take this hour to have a better understanding of what purgatory is, and especially how we can pray for those Christians that have gone on before us that are in that cleansing process of purgatory. And joining us today as our spiritual director, walking us through this topic, is Father Chris Walsh. He's a priest in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. He's the pastor of St. Raymond of Penafort Catholic Church there in Philadelphia. And Father Chris, welcome back to the program. So do you have... A favorite movie that you know is not very good, but you still go back and watch it occasionally? Well, Josh, i got to tell you, I, I just wasn't sure where you were going. As you were going in, I'm like, I thought we were talking about purgatory. Where is he going with this? <laughs> so I'm glad you finally uh, sort of landed that. Um, you know, one of the things that actually does have a purgatorial aspect for me, and I certainly don't recommend it for young audiences because it's got some difficult scenes, but it's Shawshank Redemption. Oh, okay. Where 
where some of those inmates had attachments that they needed. There's a whole theme there of freedom and redemption. Um, and I, I think it's a fine movie, but there's certainly objectionable things, but it, it certainly hits to that point as well. And as you were talking, I remember as a kid, my father loved the zombie apocalypse movies. And um, <laughs> okay. so those types of things certainly have that idea of what happens in the end. What happens then? Are you ready? Are you found worthy? Which, again, are not in any way religiously based, but they certainly hit to that theme, which should be on the mind and heart of every Christian. Am I going to be ready at that hour? Right. Well, and and that's a big part of, you know, us in our struggle here on Earth. And uh, let's discuss that part a little later, because I do want to get back to that. But maybe to start off, Father, uh, let's just discuss what purgatory is and what it is not. You know, in the past, I've spoken to different people, different Catholics and non-Catholics alike. And when the subject of purgatory comes up, it seems that there's this general kind of vague understanding or even misunderstanding of what purgatory is. Most of the time, people can't seem to explain it really well. So can you help us understand what purgatory is? I I hope so. It is interesting. In in preparation for today, I I pulled out the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which hopefully every family has a copy of. You can find it online as well. But I was shocked to discover today, Josh, that there's actually only three paragraphs on purgatory uh, in, in, in the Catechism. And I just want to read this paragraph, which is paragraph number 1030. It says, All who die in God's grace and friendship, but still imperfectly purified, are indeed assured of their eternal salvation. But after death, they undergo purification, so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. That sums up our doctrine. So many of us will die in friendship with God. We will die in grace. But... We're not yet perfect. And as you, as you quoted from John, but also from the book of Revelation, very clearly that we have to be purified in order to the glory of heaven. And so purgatory is a manifestation of the mercy of God, of the desire of God. Right? Jesus says so many times in the Gospel of John, you know, I've come to complete my Father's will. What is his will? Right? That all might be uh, won over, that all might be saved. And so what is purgatory? It's this opportunity for us to undergo purification, to be purged of the attachments that we have. Now, this process of purification, a lot of times I will hear people refer to purgatory as a place, that we can spend this long amount of time there. Uh, My understanding, does the Church ever define purgatory as a physical location? My understanding is that it might be a place, but it might also just be a process more than a physical location. Kind of the same thing with the concept of time in purgatory. Uh, you know, I've always kind of thought that was more of a human way of explaining and understanding it, but that this is probably yeah. outside of our understanding of space and time. And and that is one of the things that I remember as a child, uh, praise God for my Irish grandparents and their beautiful piety, but working with them through holy cards praying various uh, devotional prayers each day. And these were old holy cards that had on the bottom things like, uh, you know, this prayer carries with it, uh, you know, the indulgence of 100 days off of purgatory or 150 days off of purgatory. And I had that concept, and the Church actually talked about that, you know, oh boy, you know, uh, this is a difficult day, you know, I'm getting time off in purgatory. And I think we've developed that to sort of uh, cope with it, because if there's going to be a purification well, then how long is it going to take, right? Um, if I need to get ready for a medical test, I have to fast. Okay, for how long do I have to fast? And so we always want that concept because we're humans. But even just as heaven, and Pope John Paul II, St. John Paul II, got himself in a little bit of trouble with some Southern Baptist friends some years ago when he said that heaven wasn't a place, 
but a state of being. That heaven was a state of being with God. Hell is the state of being without God. And so purgatory is a state of being purified by God. And, and just as we don't point to a physical place, even though as kids, what do we think? We look up to heaven. And even in the liturgy, we still look up to heaven. But again, if we're talking about non-corporeal, because at this point, we don't have bodies. And the, and the risen body of Christ and the risen perfected body of the Blessed Mother are obviously very different than our bodies. And so it's it's hard to not think that it's like somehow like an annex to heaven. Right. And we come up with those images, and depending upon how wretched you were. But again, the problem with that in our theology is that somehow then I'm being the one purifying myself. I'm the one scrubbing off the grime. No, I'm being purified by God. I'm being purged of my attachments as, I, as I'm drawn into the presence of God, and I realize how infinite his love is. And so I, I want nothing to do with sin. I want nothing to do with, even with the things of this world that somehow capture my imagination when I'm here, wealth, fame, popularity. Um, and so I'm able to step away from that and, and, and just be purged. But yeah, it's hard because we want to have a place, we want to have time, because that's, that's our boundaries now. But the church sort of keeps us away from that thinking. Now, that paragraph that you read from the Catechism, one of the lines in there, it says that those who go through purgatory, um, they are indeed assured of their salvation. And that's one of the things that I think is important to bring up here. Uh, You know, purgatory, it's a word that's never found in Scripture, and so many non-Catholic Christians accuse the Catholic Church of inventing purgatory, seeing it as maybe a safety net, something that gives us a second chance to avoid hell uh, even after we die. But that's not the case. That's not any part of Catholic teaching. No. No. And so this idea that, it, again, I think the, the the light bulb went on for me a number of years ago in the seminary with the idea that, yeah, purgatory, I have the assurance of, of heaven. So it, it's not like it's this long place where I'm being further judged. No, the judgment is instantaneous. God knows our hearts. And to those who chose to reject God, you know, they're sadly off to the fires of hell, sad because they, they, they didn't take the advantage or, or, or some of us weren't evangelical enough in reaching them. And that's part of the sadness. But, but right, we're in, in heaven we're assured, uh, when we're in purgatory, rather, we're, we're assured that heaven will come. And I think that's part of the process in which I begin to let go. Because I see what could be. I see what will be and how much the things of this world really didn't matter. You know, my, the grudge that I held. Well, in, in light of the beatific vision, it doesn't matter. And, and, and so I let go because I, I, I begin to desire God more and more and more. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful, Father. Well, and as I mentioned, you know, this is something that that word purgatory, it's never found in Scripture. But even so... Uh, even with non-Catholic Christians that might make that accusation that, well, purgatory isn't scriptural. Um, There's a couple of problems with that. Number one, there are many different concepts, plenty that Protestant or evangelical Christians will hold to, and they'll use terminology that the Catholic Church has essentially developed or invented to describe different aspects of what we believe. Um, And those things aren't in Scripture as well. A, A very, very common one would be the belief in the Trinity, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we never find the word Trinity in Scripture, but we can find the teaching, the explanation, the basis of this purging, this purgation, this process of cleaning ourselves. We can find that at a number of different points in Scripture. 
And I think it's an important point, Josh, that we always have to remind ourselves as Catholics that we are not sola scriptura. Right? That's right. something that Martin Luther, Absolutely. as he broke away from the church, and of course founded his own church, and so you needed a church, but you just needed the Bible alone, so it's, it's kind of a circuitous uh, argument. Christ founded a church before he, the New Testament was written. Right? The, the, Paul is writing the letters to the churches. The Gospels are being told in an oral tradition before they're written down. And that oral tradition is happening in the churches, right? We, we see in Paul's own letters, right? He's writing to Corinth, which is a church. He's writing to you know, Galatia, which is a church. He's writing to Rome, where there is a church. And so Christ establishes a teaching office. We see that in Acts of the Apostles, right? It wasn't clear in the teachings of Christ when the Gentiles became Christian did they have to become Jews first? Did they have to follow dietary law? Did they have to follow purification laws? Well, there was no, Jesus didn't say anything. So what did the church do? They got together, and the bishops of the church, the successors of the apostles, and in some cases the apostles themselves, they pray, they allow the Holy Spirit to guide them, and praise God, we're able to eat shrimp wrapped in bacon, you know? <laughs> right, lobster macaroni. <laughs> made, exactly. The church made that decision. Why? Because Christ gives us the church as we develop. And so again, the second paragraph about purgatory, paragraph 1031 in the Catechism, we, we clearly admit the church gives the name purgatory, right? The church gives the name to this final purification of the elect, which is entirely different from punishment of the damned. The church formulated her doctrine of faith on purgatory at the councils of Florence and Trent. Right? but referencing scripture right, that speak of a cleansing fire. So right there in our catechism, we're certainly building on Maccabees, building on John, building on some of the writings of Paul, building on what's happened in Revelation. Is it explicit? No. But if we look at the totality of our faith, the church, who's doing what Christ set up the church to do, says, yeah, this, this makes sense, just like the Trinity, just like other issues that the church has resolved over time. And so to our Protestant brothers and sisters, I often have sympathy, because if their beliefs are saying, no, 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 in order to be, in order to be saved, everything has to be you know, tight. Like you have to have no attachments, because again, that's what Book of John, Gospel of John and the Book of Revelation say. Again, purgatory is a manifestation of our belief in God's mercy and tenderness and desire us to be saved, um, even by allowing us this purification after death. Oh, I love that. You know, that God is so willing. Not only did he send his only son to die on the cross, that we could have that hope of salvation, that he, he offers that redemption there available to us, but he even knows that for most of us, we're probably not going to achieve that perfect letting go of self, letting go of our attachments to self and sin. And so he's even going to help us even after we've accepted that free gift of salvation, he's going to help us so that we can still be a part of his family and enter into that eternal kingdom. Amen. Because God never tires. God never tires. He's a faithful God who wants to save his people. That's beautiful. Our spiritual director today is Father Chris Walsh. He's a priest in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. And we're talking about purgatory, uh, this doctrine of our faith, understanding it, getting a better grasp on what purgatory is and why the Church teaches it. Also, we're going to come up, uh, coming up here in the next uh, half hour, we're going to look specifically at praying for the souls in purgatory. So do you have 
questions about what purgatory is? Or, you know, is that something that's a part of your regular routine, offering those prayers for the souls in purgatory? And what are ways that you've incorporated that into your life? Our studio line is open right now, 888-914-9149, And we'll continue the conversation in just a moment here on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. If you are struggling or searching for something more, if you are in need of some spiritual direction, our Catholic priests are here to help. Call now, 1-888-914-9149. That's 1-888-914-9149. This is The Inner Life on Relevant Radio. Welcome back. I'm Josh Raymond, and our spiritual director today, Father Chris Walsh. He's a priest in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. He's the pastor of St. Raymond of Penafort Catholic Church there in Philly, and we're talking about purgatory today. What questions do you have about purgatory, or uh, how have you in your life been able to offer prayers, offer different things for the souls in purgatory, and how has that helped draw you into a deeper relationship with Christ? Our studio line is open where you can call and share your story, 888-914-9149, 888-914-9149. And uh, Father Chris, uh, picking up on kind of where we left off, we were talking about references in Scripture um, that, you know, we don't necessarily have to have everything identified in Scripture as uh, maybe a sola scriptura, Bible-believing Protestant or evangelical would say. Um, that's, not, that's not necessary. Even Scripture doesn't say that we have to have uh, everything based out of Scripture. But um, so much of what we have, that is the deposit of faith for us there, part of that deposit of faith. So uh, what are some places that we can look to in Scripture and see this teaching um, to help us understand why we believe in this cleansing process that we call purgatory. Yeah, I, again, I think, as we said just before the break, we always have to come back to, you know, Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus founds a church, and he right. founds it on Peter and the authority, right? So we even before we go looking for some proof text to support our doctrine of purgatory, we want to found ourselves there that Christ established a church and gave that church teaching authority. The gates of hell will not prevail. And, and, and that the Holy Spirit fills that church, and we can see that through Acts of the Apostles, that that church has the power to make decisions. Um, and so sometimes when people call that into question, I do remind them that then perhaps you should, still should be following Jewish dietary law. Perhaps you should still be following you know, Jewish purification law. Because without the church, those things are still in effect. Right. Right. And so, and so we can't have it both ways where I'm just going to go with the New Testament. Well, the New Testament adhered to the church. But particularly around purgatory, first we go to the Old Testament. Probably the most often uh, cited verse is, is in two Maccabees. The Maccabees brothers were, along with their mom and dad, were just phenomenally faithful Jewish people. And as the Jewish people and the city of Jerusalem was being invaded again and again, and people were losing their lives, they remained faithful to worship, right? Not to an idea not even to a code of behavior, but to the worship of God. The whole story of Hanukkah comes out of Maccabees, right? Hanukkah is not the Jewish Christmas. And, and I encourage Catholics to learn about Hanukkah and practice Hanukkah because they wanted to worship in the temple and they wanted to have the menorah, the, 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 the temple lamp lit, 
uh, but they didn't have enough oil. But miraculously, God provides, and they continue to worship God. But sadly, in the midst of this battle for worship, people die. And so one of the brothers, Judas Maccabeus, he says that we must go and make atonement for the dead, that they might be delivered from their sins. <clears throat> well, what does that mean? Because if, they're, if, if our Protestant brothers and sisters say, well, if they're dead, they're dead, there's nothing you can do. Well, then why are they making atonement? Why are they making atonement? Uh, secondly, St. Paul in, in, in 2 Timothy, uh, Paul prays for one of the disciples, the early Christians, whose name is Onesiphorus, right, who has died. Well, again, why is he praying for the dead? If, if, if you can't help them, which is what some of our Protestant brothers and sisters do, I will say, then why is St. Paul the great apostle to the Gentiles, right? And then, and then earlier uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 3, uh, again, Paul kind of very clearly saying that, you, you know, there, there has to be things that are burned away from us, right? And again, this idea of purgation, a fire that burns something away. Now, again, we're not talking literal. And I go, sometimes there have been visions, the children of Fatima, had visions of purgatory. Like, we don't want to make light on purgatory because being purified is, is tough. And, and Paul uses this image of, of fire. Some of the great saints and mystics who had visions of purgatory, there was an element of fire. Um, and and because that's how things are purged. That's how metal is purified. Uh, and, and other precious gems, they're, they're purified in fire. And so what does that look like? Well, again, I believe it's the fire of God that just so envelops us. So that's why some people have dramatic conversions. But but uh, I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent. That, that's, that's all right. What I, I like say. this tangent, Father. I'm enjoying this. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I say that, that, I mean, amongst the scriptures that support the doctrine of the church on purgatory. In other words, the, the other way of looking at this is there's nothing in scripture that would contradict purgatory. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's, that's very important. You know, one other thing that I think is also important to bring up as we're talking about purgatory it's very likely that most Christians will go through some sort of cleansing process, you know, that we uh, we will still have some sort of residual attachment to sin, to selfishness. But there is the possibility that we can skip purgatory, and that's kind of the ultimate goal. It should be for our lives here, right? That's right. You know, I, some years ago, the great father, uh, Benedict Reschel, uh, would, would tell seminarians when he was giving retreats, you know, don't ever laugh at the little old ladies in church who are praying the rosary all day long. He said, when I look at them, I believe that they will be in heaven uh, while I am doing cleanup crew in purgatory, right? But then he would correct himself and he said, but guys, don't shoot for purgatory, right? Don't shoot for purgatory. Don't think, oh, okay, well, God's merciful. You know, I can still have lots of attachments. No, we are called to be purified, the, the, the gospel, I think it was yesterday, be perfect as your Father is perfect. Now, again, that, that does not mean perfect the way we understand it, that my you know, silverware has to be perfectly polished and my car has to not have any dust on it or anything else. The, the, the better word in the Greek is teleos, that I don't lose sight of the vision, that I remain focused on the vision, and, and, and God desires me to be free from sin. Right, Josh, this remains our goal, that we are called to be saints. And, and that just that so many of the saints had these beautiful deaths and, and, and were in heaven right, uh, quite quickly and sometimes appearing to other people shortly thereafter, that remains our goal. That really, really, really remains our goal, that, that when I die, I am free 
of my attachment to sin, free of my attachment to be noticed and recognized, free of my attachment for power over other people, free of, of my attachment to what people think of me, because all I want is to be lost in, in the heart of God's love. Mm. And, and that remains our goal. Are we grateful that purgatory exists? Absolutely. Right? Because I might not get there. Other things may come in. Right? And, and we've seen this with folks who, who get to their senior years and all of a sudden have resentments that they didn't have when they were younger. Right? And, and, and so that all has to be purified. Um, and, and we have to make that our goal, that we really are saints at the moment of our death. Uh, Father Chris, we've got uh, Kate, who's listening in Schaumburg, Illinois, has a question about purgatory. Hi, Kate. Welcome to The Inner Life today. Glad to have you here on the program with Father Chris. Hi. Thank you. I'll be brief. Um, I'm looking at 1 John 1, nine, that says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Another uh, translation says, Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, my question is, if, if we confess our sins and he cleanses us from our unrighteousness, why do we still need to go through purgatory to be further cleansed? Yeah, great question. Thanks so much, Kate. First off, uh, th- that scripture does not in any way tell us when that cleansing is going to happen, right? So, and, and please, God, it does happen in our life. That's what we want. Um, I, I came to a great understanding of purgatory uh, in my father's last chapter of his life. My dad was a good man. He was a church-going man. Uh, but he was kind of an Archie Bunker character, and a lot of times things were his way. And my mom waited on him hand and foot for years. <clears throat> and about two years before my dad passed, um, and he died quite suddenly, he just died in his sleep, uh, my mom had had a stroke. My dad became a different person in those in those last two years. My dad was chopping up my mom's food and feeding her, wiping her face, combing her hair, pushing her in a wheelchair, uh, the nursing home where she was living. He was helping other people. I believe that my father experienced much of his purgation to that scripture point in those last two years where he overcame himself, where his attachment to being in control and being in charge, his life radically changed. My mom and him would be out to dinner all the time. They'd be traveling. They'd be going here or there. He gave up all that to love my mom. And so I think the grace of God was moving. I think my father realized that he needed to change, and he did change by the grace of God. And I think when he died, <clears throat> again, quite suddenly with no notice, um, and, and, and on the side, the way we knew he died was he didn't show up at morning mass. And people said, there must be wrong. He's always here. <laughs> he thought that wouldn't have been said years, years ago in his life. So I, I don't think that that scripture verse in any way negates the idea of purgatory. Please, God, Kate, in life, that happens for most of us, so we don't need purgatory. God does want to purify us. God does want to root it out. But in some cases, it may happen after we pass. Right. Yeah. No, th- that process, um, you know, th- whether it's here in our life now or whether it's something that still has to continue before we can enter into heaven, um, I think that that's, that's the key there, Kate. So thanks for calling in with that question. And Father Chris, like I said, we want to turn to the topic of also offering our prayers for the souls in purgatory. And, you know, one of the things we talked about in the first segment is that— the souls in purgatory, they're guaranteed to enter heaven. So uh, maybe an obvious starting point is, why does the Church recommend this is a good thing? Aren't we the ones who need the prayers? We're the ones who are still struggling to live holy lives, to avoid sin, to try and love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. Uh, If we're the ones who will hopefully remain in a state of grace but still have that possibility to reject Christ's love and the redemption offered through the cross, why are we praying for the souls of those who are definitely on their way to heaven? 
Awesome. Yeah, uh, because it's charity <laughs> uh, and because we can. So again, you know, the, the Maccabees brothers were praying for the dead. St. Paul was praying for the dead. Um, and, and then if, even if we look to the, the lives of some of the, the, the early saints who we have great esteem for, uh, someone like St. Augustine, right? Um, he, he wrote, some suffer temporal punishment only in this life, others after death, still others both in life and after death, right? Uh, but we must pray for them. We must support them. Uh, Francis de Sales, with charity towards the dead, we practice all the works of charity. Um, the church encourages us to aid the souls in purgatory. In turn, they will reward us when they come into their glory. Uh, I remember as a child learning from our teachers, right? Pray for the souls in purgatory so that one day they will pray for you. Um, and the idea is that if if these folks, do they need our help? Well, <clears throat> you know, that's a, that's a fundamental question that Christians have to answer, right? And I, and I have this conversation with my Protestant sisters and brothers often. Because they'll say, well, why are you praying for the dead? Okay, well, why am I praying for you, right? Christians, we regularly say, hey, I'm going to have surgery next week. Could you pray for me? Right. Hey, I've got to make a decision about a job. Can you pray for me? Hey, uh, you know, my sister-in-law is away from the church, but I think she's on her way back. Can you pray for her? Well, well how is that possible? Well, because we're all caught up in the body of Christ. And, 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 and it's good and, good and pleasing to God that we pray for one another. It's an act of charity that we intercede for one another. Again, St. Paul did this regularly for the right. living as well as the dead. And so if we believe that someone is caught up in the body of Christ, as Catholics, we don't believe that ends. The, 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 those in purgatory are often called you know, the, the church suffering, right? right? We're the church militant, right? We're the church militant. We're still fighting, and we need prayer for ourselves, but we have to remember the church suffering who, who are dependent on our prayer. They're, they're dependent on our prayer because, again, they can't undo their choices. I can undo my choices <laughs> in some sense. I can do penance for them now. They can't. They can't. They're just, they're just dependent totally on God's mercy, which I think is part of the purgatory experience. Right? They're just totally dependent they're totally open to receiving God's mercy. Yeah, well, that's a big uh, and, one. I, I, we all love to be in control and having to let go of that control <laughs> and just be completely reliant on God for every aspect of what's happening to you. Yeah, that, that's, that's a tough one. So again, as we say, we're a church of tradition. So why do we do it? In some ways, well, this is what we do as Catholics. Why do Protestants not do it? Well, they're not Catholic. Right, part of the Protestant movement, they protested what Catholics did. Right, so they, they they didn't want to appear. So I mean, there's no reason why not to pray the Rosary, other than the fact that Catholics do it. So I'm not going to do it. Um, I'm not going to pray for that. Why? Because that's what Catholics do. And and it is important that we understand part of the experience of the Protestant Reformation was a reaction to the selling of indulgences in the 1500s. Which, which did assign this idea of, oh, well, if you give this money, then you get these many days off of purgatory. If you, if you have this done, you know, mass stipends being an exorbitant amounts and different prices at different churches. Like, we kind of created this, some, mm -hmm. bad, some bad, bad actors in the church. And so the, many of the, particularly Lutherans, but, but in, in, in other, other groups as well, the new Reformed churches with Zwingli and these folks, they were, and John Calvin, they were reacting to this idea that somehow you were buying your way into heaven. And, and again, we, we, the church herself had to reform that at the Council of Trent. We had to move away from that. But, but there was a, a, a normal reaction to that that was an unhealthy place where we were in the 1400s and 1500s. Well, so then as we look at praying for those souls in purgatory, having this charitable 
act that we're doing, doing it out of love for our fellow Christians, our fellow disciples of Christ. What should be the focus of our prayers when we are praying for those souls? Yeah, I think a couple things. Uh, when I when I talk with people, particularly at funerals, about praying for the dead and, and our relationship with those who have died, one of the things for our own salvation is, um, are we at peace with the person who died? Do we have a grudge against them? Do we have an unforgiveness in our heart towards them? Uh, is there bitterness? Um, had we sinned against them, right? And, and sometimes that's the uh, I heard a grief counselor talk one time about the different types of grief, and sometimes my grief is I really miss the person, and, and, and I'm, I'm going to miss the blessing they were for me. Uh, sometimes it's, wow, I didn't make the most of my relationship with them, and now I can't fix it. They're gone. Well, no, we can fix it. I can still forgive someone, again, because that body of Christ. So I think the, the first thing we should be doing is praying in thanksgiving for the life. Right, because every life is sacred, every life is beautiful, and so when someone dies, we should be thinking of our relationship with them. If 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 we need to forgive them for something they did to us, do it. If we need their forgiveness, ask for it, um, so that there can be a sense of really remembering with gratitude. I, I think secondly, how do we pray? We remember them at mass. That custom of having a mass offered for someone, and sometimes and still beautifully, many in my parish will have just a mass for the souls in purgatory who have no one to pray for them. And, and I've heard, you know, some people have a very great devotion to praying for the for, forgotten souls in purgatory who have no one praying for them. Um, and, and, and so you don't have to necessarily know the people, but certainly offering, having Mass offered, or offering it yourself. Remember, every Catholic, when you go to Mass, you have the opportunity to have an intention. And so particularly in the month of November, when we remember the Holy Souls, Again, it doesn't have to be offering a stipend that's an announced Mass. You have an intention for your Mass. And so offer it for those persons. Offer your Holy Communion for the person. You're sharing the graces with them. We do this for the living. We can do it for the dead. And then certainly there are particular devotions, um, you know, Josh, that have come about. Uh, probably the most famous around purgatory is a, a 13th century German nun and mystic, St. Gertrude the Great, um, she had this simple prayer, Eternal Father, I offer thee the most precious body of thy divine Son, Jesus, in union with Masses said throughout the world today, for all the holy souls in purgatory, for sinners everywhere, for sinners in the universal church, those in my home and within my family. Amen. That's a very basic prayer, but very, very basic just prayer. to the point. Just to the point. And again, it's not one of these things I have to say it 15 times, I have to say it on one leg, I have to say it with my hand on a Divine Mercy statue or something like that. No, it's just, you know, I'm offering you, Lord, even if I can't be at Mass, I'm uniting myself. During the COVID, we had this experience of spiritual communions, right? I'm uniting myself with the Mass. The beautiful morning offering is, is also, I offer this for the salvation of souls. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's a spiritual warfare that we have forgotten for, I think, some decades, but I think is actively coming back into the Church. And part of that spiritual warfare is that we're offering always in union with the perfect prayer, which is the Mass, um, you know, our, our desire for, for, for the souls in purgatory to be freed and welcomed into heaven. Our spiritual director today on The Inner Life, Father Chris Walsh, a priest in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. We're talking about praying for the souls in purgatory, and purgatory just in general. Do you have any questions about what purgatory is? 
Or how do you offer your prayers for those souls in purgatory? How has that helped you to deepen your relationship with Christ? Eight seven, uh, excuse me, wrong number, 888-914-9149. That's our studio line, 888-914-9149. Our email address, innerlife at relevantradio.com. Uh, Norma and Christy, you're up next after this short timeout. We'll be right back here on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Catholic Order of Foresters is proud to sponsor the Relevant Radio Studio Line. For information about employment opportunities and flexible premium life insurance plans, visit RelevantRadio.com slash Forrester. If you missed part of the program, you can listen to this show and any of your favorites on the Relevant Radio app or online at RelevantRadio.com. This is The Inner Life on Relevant Radio. Welcome back to The Inner Life. I'm Josh Raymond, along with our spiritual director, Father Chris Walsh. He's a priest in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. And we're talking about purgatory today and praying for those souls in purgatory. And uh, how do you incorporate praying for the souls in purgatory in your own life? And how has that deepened your relationship with Christ? Our studio line, 888-914-9149. And Father Chris, let's go to the phones. We've got Christy, who's listening in Jefferson, Wisconsin. Hi, Christy. Welcome to The Inner Life today. Hi. Um, I had a question real quick. Um, I've heard and had mixed messages as to, can the souls in purgatory then pray for you? I've heard priests say that they can't pray for themselves, but you can ask them to also pray for your intentions since you're praying for them. And I've had priests say, no, they're not aware, and they cannot pray for you. So I just didn't know if maybe you could give some clarification. No. (laughs) Uh, There's a reason why you've gotten mixed messages, because the Church has not definitively ruled on this. Um, You've got the one camp that we'll say is is St. Thomas Aquinas, the great Dominican scholar and, and, and holy man, who believed that, no, they, they can't pray for us, um, that they're sort of in this holding pattern, uh, even though they have been judged worthy of heaven, um, they, they sort of end up with this laser singular focus. So that's one camp. Uh, and that's the minority camp, I should say, because most scholars of the church, um, Robert Bellarmine, who was the friend of Galileo, uh, we put Padre Pio in this category, uh, sort of side with St. Alphonsus Liguori, who was the great founder of the Redemptorist Fathers, um, who believed that while they can't hear our prayers, and again, this is this area of speculative theology, we talked about this before with the Trinity, but the, but the logic is, while they are singularly focused on God, they're, they're still part of the body of Christ. And so our prayers... Uh, although they're not hearing them directly yet, that's that's reserved until they get to heaven. God is allowing them to hear our requests. So it's a little different than the intercession of the saint. A saint hears us directly. Um, so so Alphonsus would say they can't hear us directly, but God allows them to hear the prayers. And then again, part of their charity is that they are praying for us, right? And this was something that was supported by again one of the other great mystics. Uh, associated with purgatory, St. Catherine Catherine of uh, Bologna, who had many, many visions of purgatory. And she said that she she never failed when she sought the intercession of the souls in purgatory, that her her prayer was granted. So the reason why you haven't gotten a clear answer, the Church herself does not have a clear answer. 
Um, and, but there is uh, certainly most of the scholars and saints of our church would lean towards the idea that they can hear you, but they hear you in an indirect way different than the way the saints do. God allows them, and that's possibly be part of their, inter- their, their purification, is that they're thinking not of themselves, but, but of others. And, and so they're growing uh, in charity in that way. Well, and one thought that comes to mind, just as a follow-up to what Christy is asking here, Father, is if we have, you know, if I have lost a spouse or a son or a daughter, and I know they've lived a fairly... Uh, you know, church-going, holy life. They probably have some things they had to work out through purgatory, had to be cleansed. But at that point, is that a consolation, too, where I could be able to pray to, you know, have that kind of ongoing uh, conversation? Let them know, hey, I'm praying for you. I'm having Masses offered for you. You know, you, you are absolutely in my prayers, and please, to whatever degree you can, pray for me as well. Certainly, and again, that, that that would certainly be a consolation to the person, and it's good for us as well because that that is not lost. And we should even even our relatives who do not live a good life, we don't know that we don't know their heart. God's the judge, so we don't want to ever presume. Well, right. it's, it's not worth it having mass offered. Uh, no, because God is God is a merciful judge, and He'll take the graces elsewhere if, if need be. Uh, but yeah, I think if we've if we've lost a spouse, if we've lost a child. Uh, if we've lost a parent that we're grieving, I think certainly, again, speaking to them as part of the body of Christ, particularly in those moments after Holy Communion, because again, we're receiving the body of Christ. And so it's not just the, the, the physical presence of Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity, but, but we're also significantly more aware of the mystical body of Christ, hopefully at that moment as well, and able to be drawn into that. That's beautiful. Uh, Father, let's go back to the phones. We've got Norma, who's listening in McAllen, Texas. Hi, Norma. You're on the air here on The Inner Life with Father Chris Walsh. Hello, and, and thank you for taking my call. I, I do not have a question about purgatory, and it's not because I know everything God knows. That's the furthest thing from the truth. But with all humility, I say that I know enough. Much like, much like Jesus multiplying the fishes and loaves, I believe that what my beautiful mother, God rest her soul, taught me about purgatory since I was a very little girl is just enough to multiply my knowledge to feed a multitude of souls in purgatory. My mother taught me that time is in God's hands. My mother taught me that suffering is a blessing. So my mother died what I consider, oh boy, she suffered. She had COPD. She had Alzheimer's. She had Parkinson's. 10% of her lungs was all she had to breathe. But I found myself, because of the beautiful woman's teaching, that I, the beautiful woman I was looking at, I was praising God that in his infinite mercy, he would allow us the privilege and honor of holding her hand while she suffered tremendously, and we prayed for her. I begged God to lessen her time in purgatory. I didn't, I'm not one to say, oh, she suffered so much, she is definitely in heaven, because mother taught me that we are not God. We don't know how his mercy, the measure of his mercy, his unconditional love for us. So, 
as uh, with all humility, I say that I know enough about purgatory so that when I bash my toe, which I do, I'm, I'm very klutzy. When I bash my toe on my desk or on my chair and it hurts so desperately, I say this is for the holy soul in purgatory. What my pain does, I don't know. But that little boy with the fishes and loaves didn't know either. So I know enough to continue praying for the holy souls in purgatory. Well, Norma, thanks so much for the call. And that's one of the things that, uh, Father Chris, uh, we really haven't delved a lot into, but she's talking about redemptive suffering and being able to offer that suffering up for those souls in purgatory. And, and again, it's it's part of our beautiful tradition of the Church, that again, we can offer our redemptive suffering for those who are living, and certainly for those who have died, because again, we're all part of the body of Christ. There's a great line in the, I think it's the second preface for the funeral mass, and we just says, for the faithful, life does not end, it merely changes. And so whatever I can do for one, I can do for the other. And that's part of the grace of this, Josh, is that, um, again, the stubbing of my toe, a hot day, um, or it's too cold in church because the air conditioning's on and I don't like air conditioning, I can offer that suffering, right? Dealing with a difficult person, uh, having a family member, a spouse who's, who's an addict. You know, all these sufferings, redemptive suffering that I can offer that beautiful morning offering, again, that many of us learned as children and prayed without knowing what we were saying, I offer it all for the salvation of souls. My own soul, uh, the souls entrusted to my care if you're a parent or a pastor, um, and then certainly for the souls in purgatory and loved ones we have died. It, it does get into this idea, you know, we, we, I mentioned earlier about the Protestant Reformation sort of pulling back against indulgences, and, and that could certainly be a whole other topic. And I know even, you know, very faithful Catholics who sort of recoil at this idea of an indulgence. An indulgence is basically the idea that Christ, you know, again, fat, founded the Church, and, and the Church holds this deposit of grace. And so the Church can take that grace and apply it. Um, and so the Church will often in, uh, attach indulgences to a pilgrimage, to a particular way of praying, praying the Liturgy of the Hours, praying the Rosary, when you include prayers for the Pope, uh, a Eucharistic Holy Hour, in this year of St. Joseph, praying the Litany of St. Joseph. Most indulgences are what we call a, um, a partial indulgence, right? It removes some of the temporal punishment due to sin. And, and, and again, that's the, that's the theological premise that underlies all of purgatory, that our sin comes with a punishment, <laughs> right? And, 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 and it has to be forgiven. It could be purified by my own prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, or if, if that doesn't happen in my lifetime, then, then in purgatory. But an indulgence, which can be applied to myself or to another, um, can help with that in this communion of saints, um, you know, and, and then a full indulgence, um, a plenary indulgence, it's called, removes all, right? And, and one of those that's most common is what's called the apostolic pardon, that if a priest is at your side, I'll be going to the hospital tomorrow afternoon for someone who's sadly dying from cancer. I'll pray with this person. If they're able to receive communion, I'll give them communion, I'll anoint them, but, but then I'll give them the apostolic pardon which removes all temporal punishment due to sin. Now, there's an asterisk there, right? This is not the Monopoly get-out-of-jail card free. Right. The person, the person has to have had no attachment to sin. Right. Well, and Father, we are just plain out of time here. Thank you so much for helping explain this uh, topic for us today. We've got about 10 seconds here for a final blessing for all of our listeners. 
May God bless you and purify you in every way, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Father Chris Walsh has been our spiritual director today. Thank you for listening. If you missed any part of the earlier portion of the broadcast, of course, always go back and you can find the podcast at RelevantRadio.com or on the Relevant Radio app. And stay tuned. We've got Mass that's coming up next tomorrow. Father Peter Cameron, he's going to be joining us as we talk about the theological virtue of faith. Have a blessed day.